you know, into whether or not I wanted to plug into the IWW. Um, there's a lot of other projects that IWW has been working on as well, including the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, or IWOC. Um, you know, some of your listeners may be familiar with the massive, uh, really historical prison strike that, that happened across North America over this past, towards the end of last summer. Um, that was largely in part organized by, by Wobblies through the IWOC, who had been making, many of them were formerly incarcerated persons themselves, and they, you know, we recognize that our prisoners are used as a disposable uh, labor force and that they, too, deserve and need to be organized in order to better advocate for themselves and their conditions. Cool. Thank you so much. Absolutely. No, I, I, I really appreciate you getting in touch with us. That was KBU's Kanan Schlesinger speaking with a spokesperson for the Industrial Workers of the World in Seattle. KBU Community Radio is a proud sponsor of Dance and Resist. Raise that fist, a live broadcast dance party on February 25th at 8 p.m. at Open Signal Portland Community Media Center. Dance and Resist, Raise That Fist will be a part of the Open Signal Open House event and will be the first broadcast of the new dance party television show featuring Kelly Danger of KBOO's Midnight Highway. This will be a space that is safe to dance for issues that we care about, self-care, and radical social change. Costumes are encouraged. Again, that's Dance and Resist, Raise That Fist, a live broadcast dance party on February 25th at 8 p.m. at Open Signal Portland Community Media Center. 2766 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This KBOO program is made possible in part by KBOO Foundation members and a grant from Radio Cab, the transportation choice of Portlanders since 1946, with service 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Radio Cab has a mobile app that allows you to book a cab with your phone. Available at the App Store, Google Play, and at radiocab.net. Or, if you prefer, you can talk to a real person at 503-227-1212. This KBOO program is made possible in part by KBOO Foundation members and a grant from Portland's Gay Directory providing a resource guide of openly gay-friendly businesses, organizations, and services since 1996. New smartphone app available for all iPhones and Droids. For more information, you can visit gaypdx.com. This is KBOO Portland. Hello, and welcome to Cutie Pock Talk, where we invite you to sit down and listen to what's shaping our queer and trans community here in Portland. I'm Darian Jones, here with... Olivia Olivia. And Aaron. And Phoenix. 
Awesome. Well, first we'd like to, before we kind of dig into today's episode, we wanted to send out a huge message of appreciation and say thanks to all of our continued listener base, for all the fans out there who've sent us loving messages on Facebook. We love the responses that we're getting from you all and just want to let you know that thank you for supporting us because it keeps us in the community. So you all are awesome. Um, so in this episode of Cutie Pock Talk, we're kind of going to focus on, you know, what's going on with Trump's administration and, you know, updates as to what we've seen here in Portland, how, how folks have continued to resist within the community, and sort of like our anticipations of what's happening in 2017. Um, so pr- plus, you know, there's something else at the end of the show. Uh, if you all stay tuned, we're giving away some tickets today to see a local cutie pock artist that's coming out on march 3rd or march 1st actually it's actually are they local no oopsies they are by no means local they're not local by oh, any no, means no you said local see i was confused i was like wait mickey's from here uh, do you give the name away don't give out names yet okay nobody i everyone <laughs> pretend you didn't hear me oh yeah it's not mickey blanc or anything it's mickey mouse <laughs> <laughs> there you go um so before we kind of begin we're just going to let you all know that We're going to kind of give a few explanations today to folks about exactly um, the definitions of terms that we'll be using because, you know, there's a lot of different rhetoric going around where folks, you know, maybe think they know what things mean, but they don't. Um, So the first portion of the show is kind of going to catch you all up on, you know, what Donald Trump has done and what has been reflected here in these past 31 days. So um, to kind of start us off, you know, on day one was a launch of a bunch of executive orders. And, um, you know, a lot of folks have been asking, like, what exactly is an executive order? And, uh, well, from a a great news reporting agency known as OPB, (laughs) the news, um, the an executive order is a specific type of presidential action, an official um, legally binding mandate passed down from the president to federal agencies under the executive branch. And executive orders are printed in the federal register and they're numbered consecutively kind of to just keep them in order with what's going on. And essentially, an executive order gives agencies instructions on how to interpret and carry out federal law. Um, And so these are a little bit different than, somewhat different than an executive action. Um, An executive action is a catch-all term that describes any action taken by the president. Um, so technically, an executive order is an executive action, but not executive actions or executive orders. <laughs> and I know it's a little confusing. And later on, we'll probably we'll, we'll touch in about what a presidential memorandum is and the proclamation. Um, but to kind of get started on some of the issues that we see kind of resulting from these executive orders um, to our community, kind of start with numbers, kind of executive orders six, seven, and nine. Um, Executive Order 6-7 is the kind of speeding approval of the Dakota Access and Keystone Pipelines. Um, And essentially, it's a memorandum that Trump invited TransCanada to resubmit its application for the pipeline permit. Um, And that's within like 60 days. And so I think Phoenix has some actual updates on what's resulted from that on the ground. Um, And then also, if you want to talk about uh, Memorandum 9, and I can Mm -hmm. define what a memorandum is before we go into it for folks. Yeah, definitely. So since um, Obama's presidency, when he stalled um, the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, there was no construction um, being legally done. Mm -hmm. Um, As we know, the company was still pushing 
um, and really waiting to see what would happen with the with the the new presidency of Trump. And what we're now seeing on the ground is the company is just going forth and constructing the pipeline and just doing it through protesters. Um, there have been continued protests on the ground. They have um, experienced some pretty vicious police uh, backlash from mm. what I've seen. Um, but largely what we're seeing is the construction of that and the Keystone Pipeline, uh, for people who may have forgotten about that as well. They're just going through. The Wait, construction can you let folks know where the Keystone Pipeline is? Because they might not... They might have mm. lost touch. I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> but yes, the Dakota Access Pipeline is going through like the D- Dakota land, right? mm-hmm. and the Keystone Pipeline, I think, goes through Montana, but also through um, a tribal land. Mm. So <clears throat> it has a similar problem. <clears throat> They're both connected to Canada, and it would have a lot of the same environmental impacts upon the communities that they'd be going through. And it was something that was in the news a couple years ago, I think 2013 to 14, and it largely um, went away for a bit until Trump decided that it was time for it to return. Wow, that seems like a like a big issue, don't you think, Aaron? Sure, and I mean, I think you know, if people think back to um, the coverage of Keystone when it was happening, there was less of a um, the the framing was less about communities of color and it was more about um environmentalists mm-hmm. um at least that's you know that's sort of how i remember the the story being framed and, and sort of fed to people um by by media people it was more about you know this is something that um environmentalists are against um there wasn't really an explicit um angle on the story back then about how this was affecting communities of color um and you know which tribes if any um, we're having their land basically, you know, destroyed by by the pipeline. It's also worth noting that the Keystone Pipeline was moved to the place that it was, um, where they've decided to put it now, because white communities did not want them in right. their own communities. So people were opposed to it because of safety in its own area. Sorry. Um... Sorry, I'm having a little bit of technical difficulties with the mic. Yeah, so I'll let you guys continue. I'm just going to correct my mic. But I think that was a big concern for me is the fact that what isn't fit for communities of white Americans would be okay to impose upon Native American communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And with uh, number nine on this list, which is um, really an interesting move by Trump, it's I would say a huge move at, um, in terms of like his very strong American nationalism. It's um, saying that any pipelines through America must be using American steel. And this, mm. this seems mm-hmm. like maybe a bit minor if we didn't know his larger rhetoric about like Americana, this is how he ca- kind of won, right? right? Big appeal to like America first, America had the best interests, we should um, be more economically protectionist and opposed free trade policies because it doesn't allow us um, the sovereignty of being a nation. <clears throat> so what does this solve? Well, it primarily, I think, just makes people feel a lot better. If we if we look at Trump's campaign and who he was associated with, it was often people like InfoWars, um, so like <clears throat> the United Nations, <clears throat> and really thinking about how uh, a lot of that rhetoric of America First often has some vague conspiratorial like sentiments attached to it. The idea that um, 
the UN is taking away American sovereignty. They're trying to create a, a one world government, that kind of thing, trying to take away the voice of the American people. Though mm. so, I, we can definitely see this as related to a lot of the politics of who is majorly popular amongst, including like far right um, conspiracy websites like Infowars and Alex Jones. No, I, I appreciate you kind of touching base on that and clarifying it for us. And do you do you want to kind of segue into some updates that you have for us on exactly what we're doing in response to Dapple and mm-hmm. kind of what's happening on the ground? From what I understand, nothing's really happening in Portland in terms of a solidarity march or protests, but um, clearly there's still people on the ground who are fighting this. So um, I know that there are some... Um, charities and GoFundMes which directly send aid to those communities that I think should be uh, people should like keep an eye out for and um, definitely um, fund if that's a way that you want to help. I also know that there's other organizations on the ground that there's a cop watch trying to be organized um, Mm. on Dakota land which they basically just need funding for cameras. Uh, I thought this GoFundMe a few um, weeks ago so that they can watch and monitor police brutality. Wow. Yeah. It's only number nine here. I know. And there's been so many executive orders, and they've had such profound effects on so many communities and communities of color and queer communities of color, especially. Um, and one of the things that I think has made the biggest amount of headlines in the past, it's only been 31 days, guys. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I know, that's... isn't that? I was going to say. 20 days and I was like it's not wow um yeah was the the, so the idea of deportation in sanctuary cities Mm. um and what that means and as you've probably heard lots of people saying Portland is a sanctuary city but what does that mean and I don't know if if other folks have been watching the news and noticing that there have been detentions and deportations across the country in places that are allegedly sanctuary cities because you know deportation officers are going into courthouses or places where people will pass through and grabbing so what 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 is the definition of a sanctuary city for us because maybe that's the the issue maybe we don't know because it seems to me that when i hear a sanctuary city especially in response to what is now called the muslim ban right and the massive deportation that we have going on and the border wall it seems that it's a place where folks can essentially seek refuge and protections against being persecuted in a way which is kind of alarming here in our country when you think about being a quote-unquote nation of the free um, so, so what exactly do you mean when you say uh, a sanctuary city? So a sanctuary city has a lot of unclear terms, but it seems like the agreed upon kind of idea there is that it's a place that protects refugees that actively isn't going after people regardless of their documentation inside the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's more of a title than it is like a actual played out played by the rules sort of definition here. There's some things missing. Um, And I think, Aaron, you sound like you were about to add something about. Uh, Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, we've heard the term sanctuary city and maybe even sanctuary state a lot, right? But I think, um, you know, an actual sanctuary is like a church or a school. It's a place Mm -hmm. that is a designated um, it's almost like a no-fly zone for law mm-hmm. enforcement. Like they, mm-hmm. basically, if you know, I'm a refugee and I'm in a church, that's a sanctuary. 
um, and I can be in there for, you know, a really, really long amount of time. I don't know if I can be in there forever, but basically it's sort of like a green zone. It's supposed to be a safe zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I've, you know, I, from the few lawyers that I know and the things that they've said, um, a lot of them don't like that people call Portland a sanctuary city or even that they call our state a sanctuary mm. state because it's not technically true. Um, you know, like Olivia said, uh, so, so, you know, our state currently, our state law is, uh, set up so that, um, law enforcement does not use resources to work with ICE, um, immigrations and customs enforcement. Uh, however, um, that doesn't mean that ICE can't still operate in our state, right? As we've already seen, you know, they were in the courthouse. Um, we don't know if they've necessarily been anywhere else and I'm not going to claim that they have because I don't know. But, um, you know, ICE can still operate in Oregon. And the other really major part of of sanctuary and deportations, sanctuary in Portland, specifically Multnomah County, is that we already know through the Oregon report, Oregonian, sorry, reporting, that black and Latino people are being arrested at higher rates than white people for similar amount of crimes. Right. Mm -hmm. And that the I think it was 20... 1.3 1.3 million like from 2004 to 2016 like the price of the, the amount of um, fines levied against people of color oh yeah and the, and the fines are incredibly higher so we're, we're you're seeing brown brown and black people paying higher fines and going into the judicial system at higher rates for similar amount of crimes and just serving longer time for the same crimes the same that are committed at the same rates and the place with the biggest access for deportation agents for to find the people that they want to remove is in custody. So, mm. you know, we're talking about people, it doesn't matter if you get convicted or not. Once you're in, detained for one thing, they can come and extradite you for something else. Yeah. And so with such a large amount of detained people of color and especially undocumented people, I think that I, I struggle to see Portland in a meaningful way as a sanctuary city or in fact Oregon when we think of what Oregon is outside of Portland and how it treats those undocumented workers, families, and students. Well, I mean, and then you have, you know, an example of some of the information that had been released today about some of the new policies that are being put into place that essentially if you've ever been arrested for anything or have a conviction, you can essentially be deported or kind of sent out of the country. And one of the other issues before we kind of cut to our next, our first break here is I want to kind of put this information to folks that, you know, there's a report that kind of states that, you know, when ICE was here and people were being detained and, you know, de- like taken from the courthouse, there was 64 arrests that have been made here in Oregon and Southwest Washington within the past, within just January. So, you know, I really trying to understand what we mean when we say sanctuary city and kind of what what allows someone to be included in that and to be excluded from that. And how are we going to access justice if we can't go to courthouses? Yeah, and let's, let's answer that when we come back from this first break here.
that song. I love that song so much. This is Cutie Pock Talk coming back to you with Bluish by Animal Collective. Hi, Darian. Hi. Welcome back, you all. So I know where we left off, we're kind of getting in a little bit of a deep discussion about what a sanctuary city is and kind of what that means for Portland. And we're going to we're going to take you all a little bit even deeper down the kind of rabbit hole. Um, But before we do that, we're going to maybe explain a few terms from uh, Phoenix here just about some of the language that we'll be using so that folks have a a deeper and more rich understanding of kind of what people mean when they say them, because there are terms like kind of like liberal and like fascist that get put out in the community community a lot but folks really don't have an understanding of what that means and so phoenix take it away yeah so fascism (laughs) fascism is um often a loaded word because a lot of people who use it aren't really using it in this historical context which makes probably a lot of people who are seeing what's going on hearing the word fascist being thrown around a lot and are like whatever Hmm. well there's a reason why you should actually be concerned about this and why we could describe many of the current political movements in the United States as fascists. Though, when we think about fascism, we often think um, World War II, Mussolini's Italy, um, Hitler's Germany, and what really unified those groups, and what really makes what's going on in America really scary, hmm. is that they were often unified around this idea of, um, of white identity. Oh, yeah. Though... Uh, if we think about Nazi Germany, these were folks who had an almost like really a cult, like um, pseudo religious like idea of like the Aryan race, right. of which they considered themselves to be descendants Pure. of. <laughs> yeah, ideas of purity, especially blood purity, purity of the nation. Um, this idea that as white people we must purge the world of all lesser races, mm. and this is something that like Nazi Germany took to a very like heavy conclusion several years after being in power. So they didn't even start there. They came to that conclusion after long time of racial exclusion. <laughs> interesting work to have happen. Yeah. Um, a lot of like really harsh laws. What are we, what, what are we seeing in the United States? Well, there's a lot of words being tossed around like the alt-right, the alternative right. Yeah. Of which Stephen Bannon, Milo Yiannopoulos, Richard facts. Spencer. Yeah. All have been associated. This is a very similar movement, but so, it's more online based. Can you explain the difference with the alt, the alt, the alternative? Yeah, yeah what's alt right versus? I've heard the argument go back and forth that we should use alt right and that we shouldn't. And I thought you'd be a great person to kind of explain what those mean and what mm. what what that means for our audience. Yeah. So alternative right. What are they an alternative to? Well, this is a movement that started around the late two thousands over the internet largely associated with Richard Spencer, who um, runs a white nationalist um, mm-hmm. policy organization. And by alternative, they mean alternative to the existing um, conservative politics of the Republican Party. They feel like it doesn't go far enough, that the neoconservatives, the religious right, um, they just they aren't being explicit enough with their racial dog whistling, talking about like taxes or like states' rights. They don't think that goes far enough. They really want an explicit discussion of white identity at the forefront. Which is why you hear Richard Spencer, and there was a video leaked by The Atlantic of um, one of his uh, conferences that happened in D.C. shortly after the election. And he talks about how we don't need black people and we don't need immigrants. Oh, By we, he means white people. That, um, and this is like- Which is America. Yeah. This is calling for ethnic cleansing. Like this isn't like subtle. We saying why we don't need them is we don't need them here. 
like we should remove them and that's a huge part of what richard spencer advocates for is um peaceful ethnic cleansing i.e we'll just use the military to round them up we won't kill them like the the nicer version of like (laughs) nazi germany essentially nazi germany with a smiling face is how the alternative right often like tried Mm. to present itself and I can see, like, the... Va- I mean, I can see the value in both of these arguments. Like, why are we giving them... Th- why are we giving them credence and calling them alt-right? But then the other part of me that's kind of, I guess, intellectualizing it understands that having different names for different branches of white supremacy is kind of vital because categorizing how they're going about their mission and what they're mm-hmm. doing differently gives you nuance to how they're different than original fascists from the 1930s, mm. Klan's member, National Patriots, those are the people who like took over Mauhauer, and they actually do have kind of different Ideas, points yeah. of view, if you want to ask a question there. No, I, yeah, I'm actually, I'm curious to know what you think those those perspectives are that we have from the 1930s up until today. Mm. Yeah, so like really, really quickly, I'm just going to talk about like one, two, or three. Like, so there's different <laughs> flavors, right? Just like on the left, we have like blue dog Democrats, you've got Hillary Clinton, <laughs> right? You've got people like Bernie Sanders, who's considered, I guess, liberal or mm-hmm. still part of the Democratic Party, but is mm. leaning left. He considers himself a democratic socialist. Right. Um, and the history of democratic socialists isn't always like, you know, as as clean cut and easy to understand as, as it is today, I think, in the United States. And then further left, you have, you know, full on communists and you have the Red Scare, mm. but you also have anarcho-communists and all these different flavors of people who are on the left, right? right. So understanding all the nuance of the right can be helpful when we're talking about why they're a threat and what they're doing. So if you're looking at like authoritarian right, you're talking about Hitler, very, very authoritarian. When you're talking about uh, a a non-authoritarian, a very libertarian right, you're talking about Mauhauer. They don't Mm. want they don't want a centralized federal government telling them what to do. And then you have the alt-right. And that's its own kind of new evolving flavor that's going to cross over between these national patriot movements, kind of the libertarian right and Mm. authoritarian right. Yeah. And to really make this very explicit, I mean, we all know that white supremacy never really went away. We can think about Klansmen. We can think about the Aryan Nation. What really makes the alt-right different is that this is really the first time in a long time that we've seen, we could say, youth-based, intellectual white supremacist movement. Um, a lot of organizations like Volksfront, who used to be in Portland, I think actually still are part of Portland, in Portland, the white supremacist gang. Um, mm. These oftentimes middle-aged, um, low-income, <coughs> like white people, and they are they aren't interested in like pushing policy or changing federal government. What they're interested in is primarily street violence. Um, against people of color and right. Jewish communities. Though this is different because they're trying to gain and have um, gained electoral success. And we're seeing this not just in the United States, but in France, in Germany. Um, they lost in Belgium, but they tried. And we're seeing it in England, where there's all these different, oftentimes explicitly calling themselves fascist parties, are trying to move away from the street gangs and go more into think tanks and public policy. (laughs) That's really scary. Which is why you have Richard Spencer, who um, runs the National Policy Institute, advocating for ethnic cleansing as 
as federal policy, mm. not as vigilante violence, which is a lot of what um, some older white supremacists like movements in the United States have advocated for, which is a mass uprising of white people, like a racial <laughs> holy war. That's scary. Instead, they want the federal, the, the alt-right want the federal government to do it for them. Yeah, it's like a federalist version of nationalist movements, which is very interesting. And it's primarily youth-based. It's largely online, which is also very mm, different. Yeah. So, you know, before Klansmen would have to organize in, like, their local neighborhoods and, yeah. like, secret. Now the anonymity of the internet means that people from all across the nation sure. and across the world can organize actions, spread ideology, you're, and that's how they've been doing it. You're really deep on the interwebs and the internet, and I know we're supposed to go to you, Olivia, but I just want to kind of dig no, a little deeper into No, I like this. We can segue more Phoenix easily here. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, um, as kind of the internet guru that you are, because mm-hmm. I see you on the Tumblrs and the mm-hmm. Reddits, and you're everywhere. Let's not talk about that. And I'm, and <laughs> well, I'm just curious, mm-hmm. allegedly in these places, I'm mm-hmm. curious to know kind of what you do see from this kind of fascist side of the community, of the world, not our community. <laughs> but, yeah. um, it's in and, our like, community, how are they, sadly. Yeah. How are they kind of coming into our community? Because I know, um, you know, a few months ago when we had uh, some of the organizers for the Portland's resistance here, Gregory McKelvey, some of the other folks on there had their photos listed from the internet for, mm-hmm. um, you know, people to be arrested and mm-hmm. for their, you know, their public addresses released to have people killed in a way mm-hmm. and that's really violent and so i'm curious to see or to know what yeah. the extremities are that you've seen or witnessed well there's the classic white supremacist websites like uh, the daily stormer stormfront american renaissance which are often news aggregate sites or forums which um are explicitly white supremacists like that that's part of their goal mm-hmm. like we are a white nationalist is it like breitbart yeah breitbart <laughs> definitely i would say it's like on the spectrum <laughs> not hiding um, it at all but there's also other websites which aren't explicitly based around white supremacy that have become hot spots for the alt right. So we can think mm. 4chan, um, oh, okay. 8chan, Reddit, really, and Reddit. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know. I didn't know. See, I don't know these things. There's like that deep fascist and alt right parts of almost every site you can think of at this point. Including They've Tumblr. infiltrated Twitter. There's alt right Tumblr. There's alt right parts of. Like, you name it, whatever it is, there's a place where those people have used that platform, including Facebook. And an interesting thing is that they often, they've been doing this for years under the guise of ironic disattachment. This Mm. idea that everything's a joke, I'm not really serious, like, I'm never serious about anything. If I, like, make a, like, a Nazi joke, it's not because I'm a Nazi. It's just because, like... I'm disaffected from the entire world. I don't really have a personality (laughs) and nothing I say or do is serious. But this has often been a guise where they can kind of test the waters. If you're offended by like what they say, they don't really need to talk to you again. But Mm. if you find it funny or you're interested in more, that becomes like a rabbit hole where they can introduce you to more and more radical ideas. Right. That makes sense. Whoa. I think that might be a cool segue into like that whole idea of free speech. Sorry. I keep on backing away from my mic, guys. (laughs) So, yeah, the idea of free speech and being able to test the waters and their ability to access that waters is sort of like what's in the news right now with Milo Yiannopoulos and him being banned from certain campuses and then people marching in return. I don't know. Aaron, have you been watching some of those? 
Some of the marches. Talk about Milo before we go into that. Oh, do oh, we, we have we can to talk, talk about talk the white gays right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll let Aaron Sorry. talk about Milo. Come on. I don't. I have nothing to say about him. Um, Didn't you no, think he was cute? Oh God! No, no, I'm kidding. Let's not go there. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just trying to lighten the mood. This is a very dark episode, kids. It's a dark day. I know. I know. Dang. Um, but so, yeah. So, you know, I've seen, I've seen some of the marches, uh, some, you know, there, you know, there have been several rights since Trump got elected. Um, I mean, and, there's a march every week here. It seems like in Portland, right. which is, you know, not normal. There's a march. There's a march every week. Some of them, um, have become more infamous than others, mainly because those people could not afford to make it a parade. Uh, but so, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I know that it might seem like a dark or kind of cynical way to look at look at marching, but I find myself asking nowadays, is is the march obsolete? Mm-hmm. What is it doing for us and what did it what did it used to do for us? Yeah. What did it used to do for us? Cuz I'm curious to see now because there's so many folks at least and not to cut anyone off now I know no, I, do that I love time, hearing the questions and um, the banter I know that from my experience um, as an adult it's been interesting being a part of 2017 and seeing so many people get fired up and like ready to make change but not really having a clear direction for it. And so it seems that most folks will end up going out and participating in some sort of demonstration. Um, But there's really not any kind of end result or end goal for it, you know, where it's like at the end of this, are we going to feed people? Are we going to house people? Are we going to make sure people have like a place to sleep? Like, I'm curious to know what is the, what do you all see? And like, what, what did it used to do for us now? Because I, in the past, it's kind of been my, the sentiments I have towards it, but now I'm not so certain. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think at least for me, what's fascinating about marches and, you know, we often hear from, um, people who are liberals, usually people who are white liberals that, um, a march should be peaceful and that, you know, there should be no violence in a march and that, um, you know, that's what they did in the civil rights movement and that's why they were successful. But what they often don't talk about is that the reason why, um, you know, those marches were peaceful on purpose because they knew that the police would, um, reply with brutality, right? Like that was before, like that was before mm-hmm. police, like police forces had to come up with tactics to basically engage with protesters without actually engaging with them violently. So they knew that policemen and that um, police forces were going to reply, you know, they were going to engage with them violently. They knew the media would be there. They knew the media would take pictures of people getting hosed down and attacked by dogs and beaten up by cops. And they knew it was going to be on the news the next day and that Americans would be outraged. And they were right. And it worked, right? But now, you know, we're sort of in this era where, I mean, you know, PPB hasn't really learned this, but a lot of other police departments... (laughs) Um, you know, they know how to engage or they think they know how to engage with protesters um, in ways that aren't going to make them look bad. And so, um, you know, I think it's one of those things where we have to consider that um, the, the peaceful march was really just a provisional tactic. Like it wasn't meant to be this like end all be all perfect um, ideal. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, like, that's so dead on. That's so dead on in so many ways because, I mean, no shade, no tea 
to the women's march. Like those ladies showed up in hordes. Yeah. There was over what five hundred thousand women downtown. It was estimated around four seventy eight, three seventy three, um, but near yeah. five thousand. They came out in droves with their allies, with their kids, right. with their boyfriends, mm-hmm. high fiving oh, cops. I'm sorry, that statistic was the actual the Washington D.C. in Oregon and Portland. It okay. was around seventy eight thousand. Sorry. Okay, seventy eight thousand in Portland. I'm just saying. Here's the here's where I'm getting. Here's what I'm getting at, and I want to have the numbers right because I'm not trying to give you guys fake news. Oh, but, please um, don't give us all facts. <laughs> yeah, I'm not giving you guys out fox let's just talk about the truth is that white women turned out in freaking roves for what they felt was an attack on them and 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 i think that the energy for the protest is there the energy for change is there but at the end what did we see we saw white women in pink hats high-fiving cops staying on the sidewalks and then patting themselves on the back for having remained so much more civil than those black live matters thugs and that's what a lot of them that's the language they use that's the language they continue to use they alienated the NAACP mm-hmm. they managed to rope in some women of color and that's great for them but at the end of the day if you're telling me that 78,000 women went downtown and took over the streets and they left and nothing had changed which is exactly what happened unfortunately then to my eyes that's not really a march it's not a rally that is a parade because yeah. the cops were on their side they had a permit they had fun and and that's good that's wholesome i don't think that we don't need that i think that joy is an important part of every activist movement yeah. but we need to learn to differentiate our joy from our power mm-hmm. and that power that we have as people sorry is i think being used up like they're intentionally directing it into marches hoping that you know we'll feel like we did something it's like let them march in fact i think like ted wheeler and the last mayor were really good about letting them march specifically in certain ways that were like kind of okay just so that we could drain out some energy not change anything not storm the house or city hall and then feel like you know hey portland's a good liberal city they let us yeah. Take over and, a, a street for a second, you know. Right. And and I think, you know, that's that's what power does, right? Like it finds a conduit to um it basically it finds a way to direct people's energy and their anger um through a path that's not going to um it's not going to threaten it, right? It's not going to threaten power. So, you know, oh like let them put on a march, like let them get their permits, let them do their marching. Like, okay, that's great, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a conduit. So that they can express their frustration and express their whatever, and then they can go home and nobody's going to be threatened, right? And, you know, I'm not saying that peaceful protests are bad or that there's something wrong with that. But what I am saying right. is that, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't be calling out a protest that um, doesn't have a permit. You shouldn't be calling out a protest that isn't the one that you would maybe go to. I think that, you know, that that's where that's where you're getting into the problem, right? Like. You know, you you do your peaceful protest. If these people over here want to do their other protests, like don't call them out for it. You know, like if you're both if you're both working for the same goal, um, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be attacking each other for it. I don't know. That's that's where I'm coming from, at least with it. And I think like piggybacking off of that too, the fact that the protests are kind of directionless now, and that we've broken apart. Yeah. Lots of leftist leftist information leftist history has been taken apart structurally so you're looking at 
an FBI, a CIA, a structural federal government that has institutional memory about what the left does and how it mm, works. Yeah. So they took down the Black Panthers, they took down the Weathermen, they took down communist parties. There's no more unified, organized left, right? That's mm. that's something that they feel they've successfully kind of torn down right. in the 19. 19- 60s and 70s and 80s um and now we don't have institutional memory on the left most people who are involved in you name it whether it's don't shoot or black lives matter or you know brown berets they might not know the history of how those organizations were broken apart because the cia has intentionally kept some of that secret right yeah and so if we can't Mm -hmm. learn from our mistakes or our successes then they learn something. They get to learn on how how they can evolve to our protests and systems, but we don't learn. Right, and I think a, a big part of that is the resistance that we have from the mass of society. Right, where you know it's February twenty first today, and I don't know if you all know, but like we're legitimately next Monday marks the fifth year since Trayvon Martin's killing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know it seems that we're still kind of circling back on these same issues and folks being like oh my gosh the violent black lives matters rioters right instead of being like they're gonna mark as terrorists right and so i mean that's essentially where it's going right now is to create this illusion of fear in the american people and this distrust where you know folks who are out there in the women's march who are out there for black lives mattering are the same people who are being hated against like outside of that and it's it's just odd to me that we in five years have learned nothing from all of the folks we've seen on our facebook page and our like feeds like all the videos now that are available and you know it's just it's really heartbreaking for me and um kind of a sad note to kind of tail well i can give you a little positive note or a spin on that is that people collectively have have the power to refocus and understand you know in, in essence the enemy or power or oppression as it is so i think it's not just a God, I feel like it has to be a bit of a PR campaign, and I hate using language like that. It's not like we're Crystal Pepsi and they're Coke, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, fascism is coming in, and it's taking care of people, and it's hunting them down where they need it. So you're talking about rural white people who feel like they've lost their jobs, they've lost power, they don't feel represented, they're really alienated from, you know, federal government and from D.C. and maybe even from their own representatives, and, you know, here comes a guy who's like, you know, the immigrants took your jobs and mm-hmm. you're, you don't see any benefit from your taxes, do you? You know why? It's because, you know, these welfare moms are taking everything away and you don't get to see mm-hmm. any benefit. Welfare moms, right? Right, right. Okay, but that's that's the problem is that they're there when we're not. And I yeah. think Phoenix can talk about what more we can do to step in mm. before the fascists get a hold of these people. And then before we, I just want to let our listeners know that we're not going to take our normal break and that we'll, we're going to continue this talk and mm. kind of try to end on a lighter note to kind of yeah. lift you all up. Yeah. So I, I do just want to make a clarification. Um, the tactic often associated with like targeting specifically poor and rural whites primarily a thing that we saw with like street-based white supremacist movements like gangs um the alt-right is very different in that Mm, it's primarily targeting middle class and Mm. you could say like very wealthy um disaffected white youth so like primarily um middle class white men who feel as if like they're losing something because feminism and affirmative action exists 
And that's how the alt-right has gotten to them. It's an interesting thing, too, because just that kind of idea, you know, I went to this talk that will not be named that was thrown by some activists here, and it was a large talk, let's talk in PDX kind of event, and I, I happened to be a part of a group where, you know, I was one of two people of color around, let's like nine white people mm. and I'm so sorry es- essentially it was for us to have a, a group think tank about you know it was like right after everything had happened like what are we gonna do and you know it seemed to me that those folks um, who are the people that can change the folks who are maybe quote unquote this rural Bob like rural Bob or let's say John rural John who lives in you know, in an area without enough access, without a lot of access and is someone who, you know, isn't from like wealth, but has had a decent life, Mm -hmm. but, you know, now sees jobs that they don't have access to because they feel like they aren't quote unquote the minority. Mm -hmm. And those same folks feel like when this was the notion, this is what was so hard to grasp is that that same John now feels like us people of color. Where as a person of color, you know, you can go on the bus and have 20 different people look at you in so many ways and kind of incite this like fear in you. And it seems to me that this is the same thing that Mm -hmm. all these quote unquote rural folks are feeling and the people who are quote unquote, they're not rural folks who are the people who are in this talk are so angry that they're not willing to reach out to those folks and actually Mm -hmm. be the ones to change their minds. Because as a person of color, like, I don't think that the person who voted for someone that supports fascist ideas wants me alive. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like that person might not be receptive to information that I have to give. Definitely. And so it's, yeah, it's just, you're you're right. I should name a couple organizations that are doing work around this, though. Like the Rural Organizing Project? Yeah, Rural Organizing Project. They're phenomenal. I love their Facebook. As well as um, Redneck Revolt. They're a leftist organization that primarily tries to get rural and low-income white people on the side of racial justice, Mm. as well as, like, uh, appealing directly to shared concerns around um, wage stagnancy, wage theft, um, evictions, things like that. So they're primarily like trying to build a broad anti-racist movement that also directly ensures that the needs of these many low-income whites who are often the targets for white supremacist gang yeah. um, tar- like recruitment feel as if that's not their option. Mm. And you have to undercut recruitment by first... Ap- meeting the direct needs of the people who are most likely to go to these movements. Now, for the alt-right, largely, it's a middle-class intellectual movement. They're, they already have their needs met. Right. But we can, in fact, ensure that all of us, through building mutual aid, ensuring that everyone has access to a home, that people don't have to fear that if I get sick, I'll lose my housing, mm-hmm. that we can directly meet the needs of the people where they are like that is in one way a way to undercut fascist organizing and we should be we should be talking um specifically like white people to a lot of um the people you feel are the most racist and really trying to ensure that a lot of their actual concerns which is loss of jobs loss of wealth loss of like um life quality is actually met if you give them a reason a reason to basically not join the fascists i think you'll find that 
a lot of these people won't be fascists. Yeah. Oh, you have something, Olivia? I was just going to say, you know, you we really need white people especially to step up and do that like if you do not talk to your coworkers and your mailmen and you know the people that you see on an everyday basis your neighbors your church friends if you don't talk mm-hmm. to them about politics someone else will yeah. and and you know what That's it's going to be somebody who has uh, a way of being able to profit off their qualms and their sorrows and their suffering mm-hmm. and ultimately those interests are I mean with obviously they're with the wealthy and with the powerful and in the end you know poor whites don't realize that black folks and queer folks are the canary in the coal mine so what happens to these immigrants and these black folks first should be an indicator of what will happen to them next but right. if they can't make that connection that's a that's a huge loss and it's a loss of solidarity yeah mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i think uh i really love that you said that uh black folks and, and immigrants are the canary in the coal mine because that's exactly what happened in the housing crisis right mm-hmm. yeah. like yeah. all you know white people found themselves saddled with debt because they had these really bad mortgages but it was happening to black people <coughs> in communities of color all throughout mm-hmm. the 90s yeah first. and no one cared about it because it wasn't happening to middle class white people and then it started happening to them and then everybody got angry well, they were evicted. So yeah. many people. Right. I mean, if yeah. you see the gentrification of North Portland, that should have been a huge indicator. Yeah. The laws that allowed people to do that allowed everybody. Yeah. So redlining and, and the way that we treated those homes and those families let our local government find a way to just displace people when they didn't want them. And right. they weren't going to stop at black people. They were right. going to stop at nothing to turn the whole entire city into skyscrapers. Make a profit. And here we are today. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. And, and There's so, your note. No, I, I don't want to cut you off, but, but we, we, we have a really good segment at the end for folks and, oh, yes, and a rounding yes. down time. Um, I do want to point out something you, you mentioned a few moments ago, Olivia, about yes. things that folks can do. Yes. Um, which, I mean, I think first starts with reading. We have the, a lot of folks have the internet. The internet can be free if you go to a local library. We're free. Um, we we can be we can be downloaded online, but you need an app to stream us. But the radio is free if you have a radio. Um, but I just want to give a shout out to an article that was kind of produced last week from Street Roots by Israel Bayer, the director. Mm. That's kind of you know what can you do to advance racial justice in Oregon? And it lists explicit things that white folks can do in their own communities to help combat racism because it doesn't start in communities of color. Mm. And that's no. my main notion. Definitely. Right. Um, and so kind of, you know, just to, to we're going to close out the show a little bit early because we got a special kind of spoken, spoken word. From Kimya uh, Dawson. Kimya Dawson here coming up. But um, I want to let all of our listeners know um, who made it to this part of the show that if you're interested in the Mickey Blanco tickets, you need to send us the the word canary in, in the, the coal mine. In the coal mine. And you need to be following our Facebook, Cutie Pock Talk. And Canary in the Coal Mine on Facebook and a Facebook Messenger. The first pe- people to do it, you'll be in the running the, to the get these. The first people? How many people? Well, I don't want to put... I, look. Okay, comment <laughs> comment on we our got... Facebook event page for this for this event. Cutie Pock Talk, find us on Facebook. There's an event page for today's uh, show. Um, uh, we want you to comment on your thoughts of whether or not the march is obsolete. And if so, why? If not, you can just write the words canary in the coal mine. So first canary in the coal mine or the best <laughs> thoughts get get the, the tickets to Mickey Blanco. There you next go. Week. 
Um, and so kind of on that piece, I want to let Olivia introduce this beautiful piece of spoken word that was introduced to me a few days ago. Yeah. So I recently, I, I'm in love with Kimya Dawson. She's a quote unquote anti-folk singer. Um, and she wrote this song about the plaintiveness of all of our cries. If you notice that many of our groups are named things like Black Lives Matter, Don't Shoot. And I just wanted to give a moment to her voice in this acoustic version. Um, just a second. We're trying to get the song up on playing. Public radio, here you go. Left hands hold the leashes and the right hands hold the torches and the grandpas holding shotguns swing on porch swings hung on porches and the grandmas in their gardens plant more seeds to cut their losses and the poachers with the pooches and the nooses preheat crosses and the pooches see the grandpas and they bare their teeth and growl while their owners turn their noses up like they smell something foul and they fumble with their crosses and they start to mumble curses and they plot ways to get grandpas off of porches into hearses but the grandpas on the porches are just scarecrows holding toys and the grandmas in the gardens are paper mache decoys while the real grandmas and grandpas are with all the girls and boys marching downtown to the city hall to make a lot of noise saying hands up don't shoot i can't breathe Black lives matter, no justice, no peace. I know that we can overcome because I had a dream, a dream we tore this racist, broken system apart at the seams. Sometimes it seems like we've reached the end of the road. We've seen cops and judges sleep together wearing long white robes and they put their white hoods up, try to take the black hoods down and they don't plan on stopping till we're all in the ground till we're dead in the ground or we're incarcerated cause prison's a big business form of enslavement plantations that profit on black folks in cages they'll break our backs and keep the wages it's outrageous that there's no place we can feel safe in this nation not in our cars not at the park not in subway stations not at church they'll pull the store not asking for help not walking down the street so we've got to scream and yell hands up don't shoot i can't breathe Black lives matter, no justice, no peace. I know that we can overcome because I had a dream, a dream we tore this racist, broken system apart at the seams. You tweet me my own lyrics. Tell me to stop letting a few bad apples ruin the bunch. Don't minimize the fight comparing apples to cops. This is about the orchards, poisoned roots, not loose fruits in a box. Once the soil's been spoiled, the whole crop's corrupt. That's why we need the grassroots working from the ground up. And we look to black Twitter to stay woke and get some truth instead of smiling cops and black mug shots on biased corporate 
news. If you steal cigarellos, or you sell loose cigarettes, or you forget your turn signal, will they see your skin as a threat? Will they kill you and then smear you and cover it up and lie? Will they call it self-defense? Will they call it suicide? Hands up, don't shoot, I can't breathe. Black lives matter, no justice, no peace. I know that we can overcome because I had a dream, a dream we tore this racist broken system apart at the seams. Decades of cultivation start from tiny seeds that were once planted. And we mustn't take the gardens that our elders grew for granted. Though it is up to our youth how new rows are organized. Because movements can't keep moving if old and unsharpened eyes can't see the need to hear what those on the ground have to say. In Ferguson and Cleveland, Staten Island, the East Bay, Charleston. Phoenix, Detroit, Sanford, Waller, Seattle, Chicago, Los Angeles, Baltimore, climbing flagpoles, taking bridges, locked together to the BART, speaking up about injustice in our music and our art, storming stages to ask candidates when they're gonna start really addressing the issues that are breaking our hearts. Hands up. Don't shoot, I can't breathe. Black lives matter, no justice, no peace. I know that we can overcome because I had a dream, a dream we tore this racist broken system apart at the seams. And if the altars are torn down, we'll keep on placing flowers for the boy whose body was in the road for more than four hours. We will honor the dead of every age and every gender cause we can't just have it be the brothers names that we remember. Black boys with skateboards and black Boys with hoodies and little black girls who are on the couch sleeping and all of the black trans women massacred too many black folks killed and brutalized too little justice served after the lynchings of our people by the murderous police who stand like hunters round their prey gasping helpless in the street feet from the teen girl that they tackled and locked handcuffed in the car right by her 12 year old brother dying and no one did CPR